This is Chapter 29 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. As we enter that time of year when college students head back to campus, we take a hard look this week at the mental health struggles student-athletes face with ESPN contributor and author Kate Fagan. Then, our Pat Farnack relays the story of a woman who escaped her abusive childhood by cutting all ties with her family. And we wrap up with this week's speech read from Adam Sternberg. What Made Maddie Run by ESPNW columnist Kate Fagan explores the suicide of University of Pennsylvania sophomore and star athlete Madison Holleran. Fagan spoke with our Marla Diamond via phone. Madison Holleran from Allendale, New Jersey, was a popular standout athlete in high school and had a big supportive family, but inside you write that she was really struggling. Yeah, and that struggle really started in earnest when she left home and moved down to Philly to the University of Pennsylvania for her freshman year. There were certainly indications in retrospect, you know, just the difference in how Madison interacted. She's a little more introspective than some of her friends during middle school and high school, but nothing that really raised a lot of red flags. Then when she went to Penn, she really struggled, a lot of anxiety, uh, what her parents would now label as depression, even though it was undiagnosed at the time. So it was really that transition to college that sparked a lot of these problems for Madison. And you write that she hid that depression and anxiety, and uh, she showed uh, her friends, her family, a very different face on social media. Yeah, her, if you look, I mean, her Instagram feed, actually, her family has kept it up. Um, but they don't post to it anymore, but they just haven't taken it down. You know, you'll see what looks like the perfect college experience and what looks like the run-up to the perfect college experience, the perfect summer beforehand. I think even in talking to... Her friends, very few of them, besides, you know, her best friend and a couple others, really knew that she was struggling past, oh, I might want to transfer. You know, she just kept repeating to the people closest to her, like, something's wrong, I'm not sure what it is. But to anyone who looked from the outside, like the veneer on her Facebook, her Instagram, her Twitter, was someone who seemed blissfully happy during her freshman year. What made it so tough for her to talk about her suicidal thoughts? Well, it'd be, it'd be tough for me to answer, like, specifically, like, having never been, you know, actually never met Madison or, or not being inside her head. I mean, I, I try to explain in the book some of the cultural factors that make it different, difficult for a lot of high school and college-age kids to talk about how they're feeling and, you know, some of the issues at play are the simple fact that a lot of the language around and a lot of the cultural, you know, zeitgeist around suicide and depression is very clinical. It's, you know, it's very, like, diagnosable and something that seems cold. So there's not a lot of kids don't relate to that. And it feels like if you talk openly about it, you're really alienating yourself from the general student population. And so I think it's really hard for kids to want to do something and say something aloud that they feel like is will, will cut them off even further from their peers. So you spoke in the book about your experience as a, as a basketball player at the University of Colorado. Is there something about college athletes in particular, perhaps that pursuit of perfection that makes them less reluctant to talk openly about depression? Yeah, I definitely think that the culture within sports, you know, the 
toughness pursuit, the pain is weakness leaving the body, just the whole environment of athletics, which is you're supposed to break people down and build them back up stronger. I mean, that's what a lot of that freshman year is like for student athletes and for athletes, but that is how you get better. I mean, you get better by pushing through and clearing hurdles. And so it can be very hard for a student athlete, especially one like Madison who was 17 and 18 years old as she got to Penn, to know the difference between a hurdle that you're supposed to clear because that's what athletics is versus a brick wall that will really level you if you continue to push through. It's not like there's always this like beautiful clearing on the other side. And so I think within college athletics, there's not a ton of infrastructure yet to really help student-athletes determine what's going on with their mental and their emotional well-being and which problems they need to push through and which ones really need to be addressed in a, in a more uh, deep way. And you've spoken about this issue on college campuses, and uh, athletes have come up to thank you at the end. What do they say to you? Well, a lot of them just really are grateful that through Madison's story and the Madison Holleran Foundation and other places and, and ESPNW doing a lot of work around this issue, that there's an actual way to have this conversation that doesn't alienate them. Because I think even having the branding of, like, ESPN associated with this conversation when we come to a college campus signals to them that this is going to be okay and it will be received well among their teammates and within the athletic department. And they finally feel like instead of, a lot of times it is their teammates saying like, oh, so-and-so is a weak link because they had to leave practice early or because they missed a few days. Instead, they're able to have conversations with their teammates about anxiety and depression and that it's not weakness it's something that they're working through and that they're still a valued member of their team and and soon after they're very grateful to be able to say those things out loud do you think that uh after maddie's suicide that college campuses and especially that the athletic department at college campuses uh did sort of a reevaluation of their mental health services I mean, I don't think Madison's death was the, that kind of an acute catalyst. I think right now it's the accumulation of a number of things, a, a, a number of suicides, and certainly not a suicide rate that's higher than the general student population. It's still lower among student-athletes. I think it's, it's, I think it's the administrators, both at the NCA and the athletic department, because of stories like Maddie's and because of their own athletes raising their hands and saying they need help, and those administrators realizing that they don't have help within the athletic department, that they're having to send their student-athletes elsewhere, and why is that when everything else that they provide student-athletes from equipment to food to resources for their physical bodies, all of that is done in-house. And so I think that conversation and athletic departments starting to realize that they need to funnel more resources to the mental and emotional side of their athletes that's the conversation that's starting to happen now, and I think Madison's story is one reason why, and hopefully this book will be further proof that athletic departments need to get at the front of this issue. In her haunting new memoir, Estranged, Jessica Berger-Gross details the abuse she suffered at the hands of her father while growing up on Long Island and tells us how a complete break with her family helped her heal. 
She told her story to our Pat Farnack. Your book was, it was hard to read. I mean, the pain really came right through the pages. I think a good place to start was where you began in the book, your first memory of being smacked by your dad. Yeah, that was the hardest part of the book to write, to go back and relive those very early childhood memories. My father was often a wonderful father, but then every week or two or three, he would get an uncontrollable rage that would come over him and he would hit me and he would say, call me terrible names. And um, this started happening from the time I was a very young child. At one point, you say if you were really good, very quiet, and you didn't mouth off, your father wouldn't get upset, and therefore you wouldn't get hit. But that wasn't the case. Anything or nothing would uh, tick him off. I tried some days so hard to be perfect, but the violence had nothing to do with disciplining me. And that's what was so confusing. It had to do with maybe he had a bad day at work or, or maybe something I said ticked him off, but it wasn't that I had done something wrong. But of course, as a young child, you feel that it's your fault. And so that was very confusing. When did you finally figure out it wasn't you, it was him? It was a very slow process. I didn't even know what child abuse was. My very first inkling was a public service announcement for a child abuse hotline that I saw on television, maybe some point in elementary school. And I remember the announcer said, it shouldn't hurt to be a child. And I thought, oh, that's me. But if I call the hotline, my father will go to prison. So even when as I began to realize what this was, it would take many, many years for me to be able to even tell one person. If you could give some examples of some of his rants and what he would do. Um. He would throw things. He would, um, like, salt and pepper shakers, shoes, bones. He would um, hit me. He would chase after me. But you know what was almost worse were the names. Um, He told me I was selfish and spoiled and trying to break up his marriage, and he cursed at me and, you know, just made me feel like a bad child, which was especially confusing when so much of the time he told me, you know, I was his favorite and I was like, he would compliment me. So it just, it made no sense. It felt very horrible to have your father. Yeah. To have my father curse at me and just call me horrible, terrible names. And then also to physically assault me, you know, I wouldn't have thought of it in those terms, but when he hit me, when he chased after me, it was terrifying. And you never knew when it would happen because it had nothing to do with you, but you didn't know that of course at the time. A good day could take a very dangerous turn very quickly. And that was something that continued even when the violence stopped as I got older. In an environment like that, you never know when you're safe, and so you can never fully relax. And that's an awful feeling when it's your one and only home. And then your mom had her own issues. My father could be very affectionate, and he was also a self-proclaimed feminist, um, very involved, My mother was colder and less affectionate, so I I felt an absence from her, an emotional absence, and what I really wanted was for her to take me and my two older brothers and run away and save us and, um, you know, 
move into an apartment in the middle of town instead of the house we lived in on Long Island. But that didn't happen. And that was just so disappointing because you want your mother to take care of you. But I, I also know that it was very difficult for her because she she loved my father. And that's what's so complicated is my parents did love me and they loved each other. But yet there was this huge secret of the domestic violence going on in our house. And so it was crazy making because there was love also. It wasn't all bad all the time. You struggled for a lifetime with your childhood abuse. What made you, and and adulthood, into adulthood? Because you were really uh, hanging in there in your 20s and still going through all of this. What made you finally tell your story to the world, really, in this book? Well, the first step was walking away from my parents. And that mm-hmm. was heartbreaking. And, you know, obviously, I write about that in the book, um, all the steps that came after. In mm-hmm. terms of sharing my story, I almost couldn't not. As a writer, this was the story I had to tell. Um, and, you know, as a child, when something like this is happening, the number one rule at home is don't ever talk about it. Don't ever tell. And so it's very powerful for me now, so many years later, I'm 45 and a mother to be able to tell my story, to tell it with hopefully compassion for my parents um, also, but to not keep this a secret any longer. And I've heard from hundreds of people who say, I could have written this book too. You're telling the story of my family. I'm also estranged, or I want to be estranged, or I was abused. And so that makes it all worth it. Did you make a decision not to ever contact them again? Or was it something that just unfolded day by day, and then there were longer and longer periods where you didn't talk, and and there wasn't any going back from that? Absolutely. It was an unfolding, ongoing process. We had a huge fight. I was 28, and I had come back to New York to see my parents and then have a week of job interviews in the city. I was living in Wisconsin at graduate school. And I just said, I can't possibly have these job interviews and keep this fight going all week. So I love you, but please don't call me. And my life, just in one week of not dealing with the dysfunction and the fighting, just became easier and healthier. And I saw that I could save myself by making this but felt like selfish decision to just have this time away from them. And then days became weeks, became months. Mm -hmm. And the more time I had away, the more I saw that this was my chance to have a new chance at life and a second chance at having a healthy life. And as much as I wanted a family, when my parents, as we had letters back and forth, when they kept asking me to take half of the responsibility for what had happened to me starting when I was two and a half, I just couldn't live that way anymore. Is there an element of punishment in this estrangement at all? Or are you more numb at this point? Or really is it about protecting yourself and your child and what you've managed to build with your family? There's probably a little of all of it, but I think of it as my way of forgiving my parents. If I was still involved with them, we would still be fighting. Uh, I would be a different person. And um, I don't think it would be a good situation for for them either. This is my way of giving them some grace, you know, and for myself too, because I think that we can forgive each other 
and allow each other to move on by not being in an active dysfunctional relationship. But also, as a mother, I do need to protect my child. And although it's so natural for us to want, for me to want my child to be with his you know, extended family, I know that those aren't people that are necessarily safe for him to be with, at least not emotionally. And and I don't know, you know, maybe not even physically. So for me, it feels like there's no choice in the matter. This is what I had to do, not just to move on with my life, but to be a good mother, to be a responsible mother and a loving mother. Did, did you tell them about the book? You don't know if they know or not. Right. I have no contact with them. I'm very good. <laughs> I say good. I, I try really hard not to Google anyone in my family. I mean, I don't. So I don't know what their emotional policy is in terms of finding out information about me. I imagine they know about it. I hope they feel that I've written about them in a way that loving and compassionate. I tried to show the difficulties of the situation that they were in, too. When my mother was 29, she had her third child, me. She went from her mother's house to living with my father. She didn't have this extended period of her 20s to find herself, and mm. um, and neither did my father. I did have that. And that's, I think, why I was able to break the cycle of violence in my family that had been going on for generations. Well, thank you so much for the interview and especially for writing the book. We are talking today to Jessica Berger-Gross, and she has written a book called Estranged, Leaving Family and Finding Home, a Memoir. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. That idea of breaking ties with your past is also central to The Blinds by Adam Sternberg. I spoke with him about the thriller, which is set in a dusty town in rural Texas. Your novel is an inventive reimagination of the Witness Protection Program. So you have to tell me, where did this idea come from? It was really the combination of three ideas that had been obsessing me for a long time. One is the Witness Protection Program, which is just a sort of fascinating uh, phenomenon in of itself, and the idea of leaving behind a life of crime to reinvent yourself as someone new. Another idea was one about sort of isolated communities that live outside of society with their own rules and regulations and ethics, whether it's an Old West town or an Amish village, or uh, I'd always been fascinated by those communities. And then the third idea was this idea of changing your memories and whether if you were able to erase certain memories, uh, it would change who you fundamentally are. And they all sort of came together in the idea for this book. And you play with with your memory loss, and there's the central question of whether or not remembering something is a bad or a good thing. And I know before this book, I thought if you could forget something traumatic, that's probably great for you. But you kind of changed my mind a little bit. Yeah, it's actually um, an existing field of research right now is this idea of helping people deal with traumatic memories. And one of the Um, avenues of research that they're pursuing is the idea of erasing the memories altogether, but it does raise an interesting question, which is if something happened to you that was very traumatic, it obviously becomes an intrinsic part of who you are. And if you were to erase your connection to it, would it change you on some fundamental level? Uh, In the blinds, obviously, the things that the people are forgetting are often the worst things imaginable that that they've done in the past. And I was very intrigued by the idea that if you knew that you had done something terrible, but you didn't know exactly what it was, how would that haunt you and how would it change the way you think about yourself? 
And you also inject in there the idea that people need hope in order to survive. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think fundamentally when you wake up every morning, uh, if you don't have hope, what's going to get you out of bed? You know, what's going to help you face the next day? And so uh, once I was playing around with this idea of people who had left behind a terrible past, I thought, well, what's going to keep them moving forward? What's going to keep them um you know, looking ahead to to the next day. And so there was this sense that, well, they need to have some sort of hope that maybe they're a better person than they think they are. And then if you in turn take that away from them, what are the repercussions going to be of that? And we have to talk about the gimmick you use to create new names in this town of yours. Was that just an easy way for you to populate the town? That's just a funny question, because I was thinking the other day about that and trying to remember where is it exactly it came from. I've always been sort of fascinated by vice presidents um, because they are, on the one hand, so famous to be the vice president and yet sort of famously forgotten. There's so many vice presidents from history that uh, you hear their name now and you think, oh, yeah, Skylar Colfax, that was a real person. Um, And so I love the idea of if you're going to invent a new identity, having to choose a totally new and distinctive name, uh, in this case, the combination of a movie star and a vice president, because uh, I felt like that would just really give you a brand new identity. And it also felt like sort of a fun game that the reader can play along with at home with these funny combinations of names. Yes, trying to guess which one was which and why they chose the combination. Yeah, and of course, it leads you to uh, you know play the game with yourself and think about, well, if it was me, what name would I choose? Uh, we even, the publisher of the book, made a website where people can go and uh, it will generate a name for you. And I got the name Harry Harlow <laughs> uh, as a combination of Harry Truman and um, and Joan Harlow. And I was like, I was like, I would love to have the name Harry Harlow. I was going to ask, is that the name you would pick for yourself? That one's pretty close. I have to say, uh, um, Chet Holden was another name that came up at a certain point. Uh, as Chester Holden, if you called yourself Chet Holden. Um, and though I, I think a minor character in the book ended up with that name. That's one that always stuck with me as being pretty, be a pretty cool name to have. So what can we expect next from you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I sat down to write this book as a standalone book. And in fact, it was sort of a break from a series of books that I had been writing previously that are very different that take place in New York. Um, But the story sort of ends at a moment where you could imagine it continuing in a certain way. So, I would love to revisit this world of these characters if uh, if there's a, a readership for it. Um, and then otherwise, I'm just waiting for the next weird idea to land in my brain. Well, I'm glad you said that because I often ask authors if their books are standalone, so if we can expect more. So I'm very happy to hear that we might get a little bit more in this story. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's funny. People will say, well, are you going to write another one? And I sometimes say, well, it's not really up to me. It's kind of up to you. <laughs> if, if readers want to read more of this of this story and these characters, then by all means, I would love to revisit them. So we'll see. Well, Adam, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you so much. That website that Adam is talking about is welcometotheblinds.com. Go get your new name, get a new identity. My new name is Sydney Ford. That's this week's podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. And if you haven't already, check out some of our past interviews on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash WCBS880.